This is the Doc Jacques Podcast. I'm Dr. Jacques de Brukert, and I'm here to talk to you about addiction and all things related to addiction and recovery. This podcast is hopefully going to be educational and helpful to people who don't understand addiction and maybe have a loved one who is suffering from addiction or is trying to get clean and sober, and also for people who suffer from addiction and maybe just want something to listen to for support, guidance, information, coaching, anything and everything that's related to addiction. I hope you enjoy. Here's a concept for addicts to get their arms around. Isolation. Isolation is the thing that addicts use the most as a tool to allow them to continue on with their addiction and their destructive behaviors. Without isolation, many times addicts will start to move towards recovery, but until they stop the isolation, they're never going to actually get there. You see, isolation is the thing that addicts use to protect themselves from others who may be judgmental or harsh or critical of their actions when they're getting high. But isolation is also the thing that keeps them separated from those who want to help them. You know, in 12-step process work, you're walking into a room with a bunch of your peers and you got to sit there and not isolate. We give you the option of staying in the front of the group or maybe sitting in the back of the room, but your anonymity is always there. Your face is there and you use a first name that you're using, but you never give your last name. And a key part of the recovery work in AA is through no crosstalk, no criticism, nothing that would make you think that what the person is hearing maybe is not what you think it is as the speaker. I want to talk about isolation today and the effects that that has on the attempt for recovery. So why do people isolate? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. If you want to get high, you kind of have in your mind this idea of somebody who's drinking or smoking pot or something, and they're doing it in a party, and they're part of the what I call the woohoo crowd. They're, yeah. But real addicts don't really do that kind of stuff. They, they'll go to parties, and they'll go to the bars, but the really serious problems really kind of come out when it comes to usage is when they're by themselves in the basement with their glass of scotch for the sophisticates who are <laughs> sitting watching a movie or something, or maybe they're just sitting down in the basement, you know, just drinking or shooting up and they're doing it by themselves. They might have one other person there, maybe, but most of my clients are the type that just kind of get alone and do it on their own. And so the, one of the first things I address with them is isolation. Now, the fact that they would come into my office and I'm a therapist and I'm supposed to talk to them, they're not in isolation, but many times they come in and they think they're just going to sit there and they're not going to talk about themselves. And maybe sometimes they come in and might talk about a little bit about them, but then really they're not. They're just kind of telling about surfacey stuff until I start calling them out on it and prying into their lives. 
And it's a real weird reaction I get from them. Many times they're really wanting to talk about stuff, but then they're kind of hesitant because they want to isolate. So they're in this weird conflicted state where they can't really do one or the other, but they want to do both at the same time. So how can you help somebody who has a need to isolate? Well, part of it is just being there. You know, your physical presence changes everything. Isolation means by yourself, you isolate from others. And if you're sitting in a room with another person, you're actually in their presence. So that's the first step. And that's why I'm glad they're coming into my office and sitting there or they're going into the rooms and saying something out loud, maybe for the first time about something that really troubles them. And they're doing it with other people. That's one of the things that's particularly difficult uh, today because we've got the coronavirus and it makes it difficult for people to be in their physical presence of others. So we find ways to adapt around it. We do Zoom meetings. We socially distance and we're wearing masks and trying to stumble through the process of recovery, but it's been very much a challenge, no doubt. So how can you help somebody who wants to isolate? First, don't let them isolate, just be present. And just being there sometimes is enough to kind of prompt things along and begin a process that changes that trajectory of, of addiction, the cycle of addiction. So isolation means being by yourself. If you're not by yourself, you're not isolating. That's only one step because if you're not isolating, really the purpose of it is to be able to share. So family members, a lot of times want to be in the presence of the other person and they, they want them to talk about their problems or they want to lecture them or something, which may seem logical to the non-addict, but to the addict, it's just intrusive and it makes them retreat. And then they're not apt to continue not isolating. They're going to reject it. The idea of isolation. So be there with them, but understand maybe they don't want to talk and that's fine. Then don't talk. But at the same time, for the addict, being able to tolerate somebody being there really requires you to understand that the person perhaps is not being judgmental, negatively judging your behaviors of coping through the use of drugs or alcohol or whatever it is you're using, but being able to just allow them to be there in your presence, be slightly uncomfortable, even though you don't want to be uncomfortable any more than you already are. So when you're feeling the need to isolate and you feel the need to somehow make a change with what's going on, make that change or at least allow that change to occur. The other part of it is how do we isolate? Where are we isolating? When are we isolating? If you feel uncomfortable, you want to not share that with other people. Maybe as a kid, because you suffered from severe trauma, you learn to just suffer in silence. Um, fearful that if you brought up the fact that you were not comfortable, that you would be punished or blamed. And that's what the me-centric child would do. They would think they're responsible for their feelings and 
be responsible for the fact that they don't feel good and it's their fault. And that's where the beginnings of isolation are, is in that childhood experience. Most of my clients have uh, severe trauma in their background. And so they learn to be quiet, either because they're going to be punished or they're threatened with something if they do speak out, or perhaps they speak out and it goes on deaf ears. I've had many clients who have a variety of those different experiences. Um, and it's mainly uh, the, the threat of, of retaliation for whatever it is that's going on that they're going to uh, find that they are going to be punished if they do actually say something. Sometimes what happens is they go through that process long enough and they learn that nobody really understands. So if you are a child and you're saying something about the fact that you're being molested or you're being hit or you're being neglected or verbally abused or emotionally abused, and you don't say anything, that's one thing. But if you do say something, the person you're saying it to, a teacher, an authority figure, uh, the other parent, somebody, um, they may not really take action steps. And so the child then grows up learning that there's no real recourse for this abuse that goes on. And so they think nobody understands because nobody's listening. And then as they age and they become adults, then they keep that thought that nobody understands. And that just kind of reinforces the idea that they've got to remain silent because nobody understands, nobody gets it. And it's unfortunate because many people do actually get it. They get it, they understand it. They understand that what's happening is bad or what has happened is bad and they say something about it and they respond. But that child in the attic says, no, you don't really understand. You don't get it. Happens to me as a therapist when someone's talking to me, they'll maybe leave big chunks of the story out and we drill down into it because I'm a therapist and that's what I have to do with people. And so we start drilling down and I'm like, didn't anybody ever respond to this? No. So you think nobody cares? Right. That's what they respond. Well, but that was wrong. <laughs> it's like the story you're telling me that was wrong. That the thing that happened to you was really bad. And they've never heard anybody say that to them in their adult life. And it's difficult and challenging for them. That's when I get a lot of tears sometimes in, in my clients, when these admissions of things that they've done and they actually hear another adult hear it. Or they hear another adult listening and they watch the reaction from that adult, me, and I respond with, that was really bad and they've never heard it and you can see the client physically change the 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 relief that they have that they're actually say it out loud and somebody actually responded with the way that they feel about it that it was wrong and they sometimes don't know what to do with that feeling but they actually experience it so they're experiencing their stuff with an understanding that their stuff was not so good. So isolation 
allows all of that to come out into the light. And that's really where that change occurs of, of understanding. Ironically, when I say, well, you know, if that were happening to your neighbor's kid and you saw it, you would say something because it was wrong, whatever happened to them. So if the client was getting verbally assaulted by their mother and I said, you know, if you saw your next door neighbor screaming at their child in a way that was abusive, you would not just stand there and let it happen, right? You would, you would do something about it. And they, they may respond with, no, of course not. It's like, well, then why would you think that it, it didn't really matter when it happened to you, that it, it wasn't a big deal? And they minimize what they're, what they're feeling. And it's like, wow, I never really thought of it that way. A lot of times the abuse that they suffer at the hands of their parents, uh, for example, is completely dismissed. Uh, by by the the addict because well they and this is a phrase i hear all the time well that's the they were doing the best they could do or she did the best she could do or he did the best he could do and i'm like really screaming at you and and locking you in the basement for eight hours at a time was the best he could do as a parent or mom drinking during the day and then passed out when you got home from school and didn't make dinner because she didn't wake up until around 11 p.m. when you were eight. That was the best she could do. And it's kind of an indefensible position, right? Well, that was the best they could do. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not the best they could do. They could have done a lot better. And there's nothing that actually can make that okay. The parents' actions. So these kinds of conversations are the ones that occur when you get out of isolation. But there are a number of things that have to be in place in order for there to be that place of safety where the person can stop isolating and then can start verbalizing things that happened. Safe environment requires they're not going to be attacked when they're not isolating if if the addict is isolating and there's somebody present with them and the addict doesn't want to talk, fine, don't talk. Just sit there. But I can't let you sit here by yourself. And if you are going to talk to that addict, you can't do it in an accusatory, condemning way. And you can't lecture them. You can't criticize, can't judge. You just kind of got to listen. And a lot of times when an addict is destructive. You want to give them instructions on how to fix this problem, thinking that them getting high is the problem and it's not. So you just got to listen and maybe they, maybe they just want to talk or maybe mention something. Maybe what they're doing is the addict is, is saying something and they're kind of testing the person who's listening to see how they'll react. And that again happens in my office a lot. They'll say something to me and like I said, the response I give them is that is awful. That is, that is not ever okay. And they've never heard that from anybody. And it's important. So isolation is addiction's best friend. It's addiction's best enemy. So let's not to let them isolate. Let's safely allow them to feel like there's nothing that they can do 
to make that change that would keep them from making that change. And they don't have to do it by themselves. They can be with another person and they can do it safely. So if you want to help, the first part of that is let's beat isolation. Let's make it not a thing in their life. The safe place for them. We want to make it feel uncomfortable to be isolated. Takes a long time. Takes a lot of work. Takes a lot of meetings. Takes a lot of therapy. But you can get there. And you can help an addict get there. And addicts can get there. But it's a tough road to take. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor.fm. It's a free podcast platform that has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. How do addicts isolate? Well, there's two ways. One is to do it privately by staying away from people, staying in your house, apartment, in your bedroom, in the basement, just staying away from people. The other one is to hide in plain sight, go out in groups of people and isolate that way. It's an interesting difference between the two and really, it's really important and essential to understand what those two things look like. So the two ways that people can isolate in public or in private, it's really important, I think, for people who are not addicts to really understand the difference between the two and how they look. So isolating in plain view is being around other people. Maybe you go to parties, maybe you go to work, you try to pretend like you're normal, everything's fine, or the person who's an addict will end up taking on like almost a different persona. I've had clients who uh, are finding that they can hide in plain sight because they get attention. Uh, women who do that a lot of times will do it by getting engaged in the the sex trade they'll do uh cam they'll become cam girls they'll do sex cams they'll become strippers or prostitutes and those women have completely different personas that they think that they are at those times when they're engaging in those activities sometimes they will do it by just going to work and pretending like nobody really notices Nobody notices I'm high or drunk. I've had individuals who are white collar workers who go through their days and they are at work and they, nobody really knows that they're high because they're high all the time. And that's just kind of who they are. But when they are done with work, maybe they, maybe they get even more engaged in getting high or drunk, or maybe they don't, but they try to keep that facade of everyday living. And if somebody asks them, hey, are you okay? Their answer is going to be, yeah, no, I'm fine. 
the young ladies who fall into the sex trade, they do that because they can actually be a different person because nobody really cares who they are because they're so objectified that it doesn't matter who they are. Nobody cares what their personality is or where they came from or how they grew up. And they know that. And that's what attracts them to it. It's a power thing for them too. They are in control of everything that goes on. And we can get into that in a different podcast, but it's a control issue for them too. But they're in, they're, they're hidden in plain sight and it's easy to do for them. Um, However, it does catch up to them eventually and they start to see the cracks in, in what they're doing and how they're doing it and the behaviors start to change then or at least they break down a little bit. But for the person who's hiding in plain sight, not quite as easy um, because it's an act. It's kind of like they're being an actor or an actress and they have to keep up that facade and so they have to remember what their part is. Uh, it's kind of like an actor memorizing his lines or doing the stage blocking um, for a Broadway production. They have to know where to stand at what time in what place on the stage or how to respond to what lines are being spewed out by the other actors so they can kind of keep track of where they are in, in that play. And in real life that happens too. So it becomes a shell game of trying to remember who is where and who is what, and what did I say to who? And, uh, after a while, they kind of just disengage uh, from people in general. And you can see them hiding in plain sight because they're not really there. They're, they are there, but they're not really there. They're not emotionally investing in anything that they're engaging in, whether it's with another person or in a place or work or family members or whatever. They're not really engaging with them. And, and a person who's not an addict is going to pick up that something's not right, but they don't quite know what it is. The irony, the whole thing is that, you know, we got a lot of sayings in recovery and one of them is if you got it, you spot it. And most recovered addicts can spot somebody doing that a mile away. And we know what it's about. Uh, we can tell. We know that they're hiding in plain sight. Maybe addicts don't call it that, but that's what it is. So it, it's a it's a very useful tool. Uh, it's very irritating to the people who are loved ones because they want that person to be present and they want them to be engaged, but then they really can't do it. So being engaged and being present is kind of a tough one um, to do when you all you want to do is get high or you want to use a barrier between you and other people so you don't listen to their, you don't have to hear their criticism, their attacks or condemnation because you're being irresponsible or stupid or foolish or selfish. Um, and it's hard. I think non-addicts really struggle with it because they're, they want the person to be there. But again, it's kind of that thing about you just don't get it. And the non-addict really probably doesn't get it. It's not their fault, but they don't get it. The world is a, is a very, dark and complex and difficult place for an addict to live. And your average everyday person who's not an addict doesn't have that life going on and doesn't know how to relate to it. So they can't really empathize with it. So when you're encountering somebody who's hiding in plain sight, again, you know, attacking, um, condemning, that's not the best approach. They're disengaged for a reason. 
and addiction is their coping mechanism and they're engaging in their coping mechanism. So it's not going to help if they become present. It's just not going to help at that moment because they're not really working on recovery. On the other hand, when they're isolating without anybody present, they're hiding from people and they're not there. The non-addict loved one is not going to really know what's going on because the addict is hiding and they're not visible. So you can't tell. They stop showing up for things, family events, um, birthdays, holidays, things like that. Or they just stop returning phone calls. They won't answer the door. I've heard every version of hiding that I think I can imagine. I, I don't know that I haven't heard every version. I think I have heard every version. The person stops responding to text messages, emails, letters, phone calls, knocking on the door. Hey, come on out. I wanted to ask you something. Even I've even had clients who have had relatives try to find them because they, they actually owed them money and, and they wanted to give the person who's an addict money that was owed and they just couldn't get the person to respond. They couldn't get the addict to respond to be able to receive the money. And it, it's so frustrating to loved ones because they love them and they want them to not be that way. So addicts who play, who, who hide uh, as a way of isolating, it's, it's very uncomfortable to be around people in general. And that's why it's hard for people who hide rather than isolating in plain sight, but isolating in, in, in isolation, they're not comfortable with going to meetings. They're not comfortable with being around more than one person at a time. Many times they, they just can't tolerate it, but that's also part of the key to recovery is to be able to not isolate. But if you're a loved one of an addict and you're trying to help them, you're not going to force them into not isolating. You can't. It's just not possible. They're not going to respond positively to you. It's a progressive thing. I struggle with it just trying to get them into my office and they come in my office and I'm like, hey, would you consider going to meetings? It's really, really important and helpful. Get into the recovery community. No, no, I can't do that. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, but you got, you have to. No, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. Okay, well, what if I what if I meet you at a meeting? What if I go with you? Or what if I call somebody who I know that uh, will come with you to a meeting? Yeah, no. No, I'm not doing that. So trying to help them understand how to how to be safe in going to meetings or how to be safe jumping into the recovery community is part of my challenge as a therapist. And I'm sure as an addict, uh, you know, I'm sitting here disclosing your secrets, your little secret moves. <laughs> Maybe that's not what you would like for me to do, but I'm going to, because you need that. You need to be able to get out of the basement, get out of the, the hibernation mode that you get into. Family members need to understand that it's not something that's going to be easy for them to do. Maybe you do need professional help, you know, find a therapist, find somebody like me that can help you, uh, get them to move away from isolation. 
but this is their this is their one of their tactics to feel safe from their feelings from feeling uncomfortable they do have feelings and they do feel uncomfortable and being around people makes them even more uncomfortable even though that is what's eventually going to help them get sober and clean but in the immediacy it is a feeling of discomfort beyond comprehension for the non-addict so being isolated is torturous and necessary they think in their usage the problem with hiding in plain sight is that it appears as if they want to be around people but they really don't because they're not engaging so they're around them but they're not really engaged with them and that's a very different thing to uh to change that's where you need somebody to not isolate in the presence of other people so doing things like going to meetings that's a that's an easy one they just go but they sit on in the back of the room on what i call the relapse row where they're just there because they were supposed to be there they're not there because they really want to be there but if they can get into that room they will notice that people will walk up and engage with them. And it's a little unsettling to them when somebody sticks their hand out and says, hey, welcome to the meeting or, hey, welcome to the group. And they're kind of like, hey, I didn't think you saw me. <laughs> but here I am. Yeah, no. It's, it's a soft landing that takes a long runway. It's not a parachute drop in. It's a very, very long, long landing. A C-140 plane instead of a parachute, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah, it takes a while for that aircraft to actually touch ground and then slow down enough to, to be in a safe position after it's landed. Patience, love, care are what's needed. And that's what addicts need, but sometimes that makes them feel very, very uncomfortable. So let's work on isolation and see if we can make that change. Because that, I think, is probably the beginnings of the first steps in recovery. Because remember, we're not really treating addiction because that's a behavior. We're treating the problem. And the addiction is not the problem. It's the coping mechanism. And so we want to make sure that if we're going to treat the problem and we're going to try to get them to engage in a different coping mechanism, that they can engage in it safely and feel comfortable while they're doing it. And so that transition from the destructive and faulty coping mechanism to one that is not faulty, like being in groups and sharing and talking is one that can be done comfortably. Maybe not at first, but you'll get there. There are a lot of aspects to recovery, and there are a lot of things that need to be addressed in recovery, and one of those we've talked about today is isolation. There's a lot more to talk about isolation, and we're going to do that in the future, but just hopefully this has been able to give you some insight into what happens when people isolate who are stuck in the cycle of addiction as part of the weapon to keep 
them in that addiction that the enemy addiction uses. So hopefully this has been informational and maybe even entertaining for you. I don't know. And in future episodes, we're going to cover more about isolation and a lot of other coping mechanisms that addicts use that are faulty and need to be changed. Thanks for listening.